um, when I was teaching more within the midwifery school, I mentioned like we would have workshops for for practicing midwives, not just women who wanted to become midwives, who wanted a different perspective. And we would like go through the spiel and talk about, well, like, what do you do? Well, you're, you know, holding the space, you're the smell membrane, you're the shaman. And they'd be like, well, what do I do then? I'm like, well, you don't really do anything, but that's the most powerful role. Don't you see? <laughs> like, What's the better? Like, no, you know, like, what do I do? Like, I have all these tools and these skills and these things. I'm like, well, you might need them. But your work is to learn how you need them and when and not just like you do them because that's what you're told is the way to do it to be most safe. Because it's not. It's not. You have to return to this aspect of what birth is about being a human, that there is an element of unknown, of magic, like of still, even if you didn't believe in magic, of all kinds of science that we have no idea or don't understand at all yet at this point in time. Like I had a moment where it hit me where it's like, there is no way I could ever know more about a woman or family's birth than they know. There's absolutely impossible. Like, and it's my job to learn how to follow their energy, to know when they may need a skill that I have, but I can't know more. And I can't come into this thinking that I know more. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca, co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, and writer and teacher Jessica. We are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find that link to our site in the episode notes. Uh, you can also find our personal social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca on Instagram and just Twitter handle as at jcomi89. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications and share, share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. Thank you. Uh, well, today <laughs> we'll be in conversation with JD and Jay, uh, former interviewees, uh, folks that we've had on What's Left uh, when we've interviewed them for the Appalachian Academy of Therapeutic Arts, um, a different type of education, very alternative. Even that does not describe and we uh, what we uh, interviewed them about. And we hope that folks will be able to look at that past episode that we did with them. Today we'll be in conversation about midwifery. The topic will be about midwifery, but we'll see where it takes us on this ride because these two individuals are very, <laughs> have a lot of knowledge to share with us and impart. So just as a reminder for folks that are have just tuned in with us, who are not uh, who haven't heard past episodes, JD has worked in the realms of education and empowerment and therapeutic transformation. Uh, she uh, home birth, she is a home birth midwifery practitioner and a mother. Uh, to five bio children and one stepchild, and four of those children were born at home with midwives, and uh, and she is the founding one of the founding roles at uh, Ada, and it's been a lifelong dream for them. And I'm very excited that we'll be getting to have her again share with us of the, the update from the school. And Jay, who's been working with trauma as both as a facilitator and educator for over 25 years, and in 2006 he studied vibrational medicine with Fabian Maman at the Tamadu Institute, focusing on resolving dissonances in the physical and subtle bodies. And Jay has been a professional musician and music instructor since 2002, creating accessibility to all levels of music capabilities, helping everyone he works with to access their innate harmonic genius. Thank you both for joining us again today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here again. <laughs> How have you first? I guess I just want to start off by asking, how have you both been since we've last spoken? 
<laughs> well, like a wild ride over here in these mountains for sure. Um, but we just finished our second year of Ada. So today was the day, the, the final day. So that's been a, a pretty big milestone. And, um, you know, aside from being very, you know, enmeshed and <laughs> absorbed in that, it's also been a pretty big triumph for the, the level of uh, cohesiveness and stability that we've reached in year two. So there's a, a really great team of folks have come together and uh, we're, we're really glad to be finished with our second year and looking forward to our third year. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. Feels like we've gotten a lot of the foundational pieces more in place and solid and having an opportunity to play a little bit more, to look at building and enriching the curriculum from the therapeutic aspects that we've really wanted to be able to have more time to do since the beginning. So that's, that is bringing a lot more joy for me in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and we had an opportunity in February to attend the Next Steps Conference in Georgia and present on the school. So sharing from that perspective as um, offering a model for what other people might be able to incorporate into their community, you know, whatever types of educational opportunities people might want to provide that are similar to us, like just really stepping into a role of now mentoring other folks, which I love. So that's just, yeah, another cool thing that's happened since we talked last. Beautiful. Um, speaking to, speaking to midwifery and, and the process of birth, you know, the way, the way that we've been framing this in our conversations is that the what we're doing with the school and the the children that we're working with, which roughly go from around three to about twelve at this point, um, you know, this is just part of the process that we find ourselves in because you know we go from coming from whatever kind of family situation we came from, reaching whatever type of you know life position we reach when we do if we choose to have children and then we find ourselves faced in a faced with a situation of tremendous significance and and potency and transformation and and weight and and significance in this uh you know lineage type way like an intergenerational thing is happening when we start to engage with the process of having a child and so in that way, this what we're doing with Ada is is really just part of a part of a continuum that has been a really central piece of what has brought JD and I together in our you know on our paths together in this life. And so her her background with working as a home birth midwife and you know really uh, the transformational quality of what birth is and all of those things. I mean, it's essentially you're opening up a portal to bring a life into another dimension. And so there's all of these metaphysical or or subtle spiritual significances to this. And so um you know the way that the way that I look at it is that we have this intergener like I said before, there's this intergenerational 
quality to to what goes on with reproduction and where we find ourselves. We're just one piece along the spectrum. And so we do carry with us and we have to contend with as you know, men and women that are having children and part of that continuum. We have to contend with all of these, you know, for, for lack of a better word, challenging and or nefarious aspects that are creating a situation where the birthing landscape that we find ourselves trying to navigate is fractured and broken and actually working against us in a lot of ways to be in our true and empowered experience of what that means to be a father or a mother or even a birthing child you know being a child being birthed or a young child or a grandparent you know anywhere along that along that spectrum and so we we find ourselves in a, a situation where oftentimes from the point of conception we end up with a you know this these missteps or an unplanned pregnancy or an unwanted pregnancy or a lot of mixed feelings around you know one parent maybe feeling one way about it another parent feeling one way about it and that extending out through the family so we have this these different ideas taboos expectations social norms all of these things working and then that you know carries on through into our gestational period where we contend with different caretakers that are telling us we don't know what we're doing. We need to do X, Y, Z rather than facilitating or holding space for us to tap into something on an internal, um, you know, level where we're following our own compass. And so there, there is an interesting aspect to how, you know, in, in our situation, like the father and the mother can both be, equally represented and supported to follow the the intuitive aspects of each of those and how they can work together and you know so that that isn't something that is really being held by mainstream medical or mainstream much of anything for that for that matter and so you know that goes on through the uh, the gestational period where there's the, the mother is carrying the child and the father is you know there along for the ride but really the the direction of how that's being dictated is is coming from caretakers which are you know outside of that family unit and so you know then that leads up to the birth itself and then we have this incredibly powerful transformational portal experience and you know, thinking about the idea of a portal and how that's what, you know, how that comes into play as far as what's going on. But, you know, even with the terminology of the idea of like the birth canal, right? So that brings in this maritime admiralty language where it's, again, we're, we're in indentured servitude or, you know, slavery kind of mentality as far as our, our thoughts around this. And then, you know, from the the birthing experience, you have this incredible altered state transformative situation going on that's being highly managed by, uh, you know, the medical machine. And so, you know, even, even outside of that, even in a lot of um, midwifery, it still happens. It's still someone that knows and the birthing parents that don't know. 
And so it's, it's really kind of shocking and surprising how often that type of thing still goes on, even within these more alternative ways of doing things or working with doulas and midwives and things like that. And so then, you know, from that point on, you know, the child is already in a place of separation from 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 themselves, from the parents. And so there it creates this situation where it snowballs and then you end up with children in daycare, children in the public school system growing up in a, in a situation where we're being further programmed to not be following our inner compass, looking outside of ourselves for direction, and so on and so forth. And so that that kind of speaks to this intergenerational quality that I'm seeing and how this plays out. And so to tie that in with, with Ada and birth, so that's, you know, a, <laughs> that's my that's my two cents on that. So well, I mean, I that makes a lot of sense. I'm still trying to digest that myself. To, 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 I think what you're saying is the the very the very things we were told. If you don't know what you're doing in terms of educating your child or the child, you don't know what you're doing while being educated. That process of being told you don't know what you're doing starts from jump basically, and somebody else gets in, involved in it and, and directs the whole thing. As you, That's what I'm hearing you talk about in terms of and drawing a connection between a system that's telling you that and how to free yourself from that, uh, starting from reproduction. And if I'm understanding it right. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, yeah I mean, it's full, it's full yeah, cycle. Full, a full circle of things. And mm -hmm. I mean, there's lots of different, really amazing people who've spent a lot of time researching and studying and looking at birth practices and the history of birth and the current state of birth in modern societies. And you know, if you agree to a more basic idea of evolution, which I'm not quite sure I do, or I don't know where anybody's at, but for a, you know, a landing place, at one point in time, humans were more at the right, at the mercy of nature. Like we were responding to nature. And then, you know, from the evolutionary standpoint perspective, at some point that shifted and we realized or we began or however that looked to be able to manipulate nature rather than just being in a response. And so then we could manipulate nature, right? The founding of agriculture, all those things, manipulate other humans, because now we see that we have power over rather than just power upon us. And at that point in time, it's, you know, history, what we have of history that's written down and our perceptions of it is that birth practices were interfered with from that point. And one may ask why, you know, and then there's there's lots of examples of how birth practices have been interfered with for hundreds of years, whether it's saying colostrum is terrible and a baby has to be kept away from the mom for the first three days or cutting a cord or any number of you know, umbilical cord, any number of these things. And the thought at that point in time would be, well, we're trying to create a human that is more aggressive, essentially, that feels like life is hard. Like we're going to interfere at that point in time, initially upon, you know, being here for the first moments of life, that life is hard and it's not easy and we're going to like do these things. And so that's still going on. 
obviously so if you look at our current situation around birth like birth is still the most focused upon moments of one's life in a medical field where birth doesn't have anything to do with medicine truly the very like opposed processes medicine is there to interfere when the body cannot do it's what it's supposed to do birth is physiologic it has a plan it unfolds it works or else humans wouldn't be here but some for some reason it's still highly focused on and it's highly manipulated and so for me i'm like that's not a coincidence like we some somehow some beings some forces still know that that's a very potent time mm. um there's someone by the name of michelle odont who has a whole institute called the primal health research institute and he's been incorporating hundreds if not thousands of studies to create a database where we can all look at what's going on with birth you know from a very meta analytical standpoint and he has termed the primal health period is from through gestation birth and the first year of life and is saying the things that are done during that period have an exponential effect on the future of of whatever you know a mammal a human so if you wanted to create a change in genetics or behavior or you know our immune system or endocrine system do it during that primal health time and you will see an effect within one two three generations versus you know 10 20 years type of thing and so again it's like why do we care birth doesn't make a lot of money you know birth is it's not something that needs to be like i mentioned in a medical system so it goes to this place of like well what you know why are we still doing this what do we see the need or what is you know gained from interfering with the birth process and then there's a lot of questions around that that you know are interesting to talk about for sure um i mean both of us can uh, keep talking <laughs> possibly have questions yeah well jd do you want to go into your kind of personal story at all like either in terms of becoming a mother your own births and or your journey you know toward midwifery yeah. and maybe maybe with that second one at some point I would love to maybe just touch on the question of even just that word of midwife or midwifery and how you define it I think there's I mean it's in the sort of mainstream culture I think the the word doesn't mean anything like what it meant 300 years ago. So I'm always kind of curious to like when people are throwing around that word and that's how we're even framing this whole episode. I think maybe just a sort of definitional inquiry might be generative. Sure. Um, as far as my, a bit on my story or my history, um, I had always felt like I wanted to be an obstetrician. I had a full scholarship pre-med started that track 100% and then attended a hospital birth. It floored me. I thought that the baby actually died. I left the room, was like trying to process what it would be like to be with a mother and a dead baby. And come to find out the baby was completely fine, that everything I had witnessed was normal in the hospital situation. Um, and it just sent me you know, spinning and spiraling into like, well, what is this? What's happening? This isn't how I want to be. This isn't what I thought this was about. And so I pulled back from that and took some time, thought I might be a nurse, still didn't really like fit. So yeah, just continued to hold space for that and ended up working with someone whose roommate was studying to be a midwife. And I was like, oh, like, what is this? Tell me more about this other option here. And 
Um, at that point, I had a very distinct memory of my mom's friend when I was probably about maybe nine on my back porch. And she was just for, again, for simplicity's sake, she was a lovely hippie of the 80s. And she had hair growing in parts that I didn't think women ever let hair grow in. And I was remembering this memory of my mom's friend telling me about how she had her baby on in her front yard on her front porch on Nine Mile in Detroit. And if anybody has any, you know, knowing of what that's like, it's like, oh my God, how would somebody have a baby in their front yard in the middle of Detroit? But that's what she wanted to do. And it was an amazing birth and it was like perfect for her. And then so reconciling that memory with where I was at that point, I completely dropped out of college and started traveling the country in search of a midwifery education and spent time doing short internships around with different midwives throughout many different states, um, landed back in Michigan shortly after that, found out I was pregnant with my first son, um, went into that pregnancy and labor feeling relatively confident because I had been studying home, I planned a home birth, studying home birth midwifery at that point for like three or four years. Um, and the birth itself, I can say all of my births were would be successful home births. There were no complications. There was nothing untoward that you could see from the outside. First time mom, seven hour labor at home. That's um, pretty phenomenal, actually. But I walked away from it feeling like something wasn't right. And I didn't quite know what it was. Um, I became pregnant with my second son sooner than I had anticipated. So when my first was only nine months old. And went into that pregnancy feeling actually quite depressed, again, not really knowing, like a lot of like unresolved things that I didn't have the resources to really do much with at the time. Went on to have a second home birth that was only like three hours long. Again, everything was lovely from the outside, but left it feeling like in a, in a really intense state emotionally that, and that I couldn't do midwifery anymore. And so I took a different path into nutrition and just kind of set it aside. Um, but for a lot of people I know who are interested in birth, it doesn't necessarily ever leave your heart and your soul. So as time went on, I found myself helping some young women in my community, like with, you know, doing doula work, stuff like that. And then feeling like inspired again and deciding at the time, and this was in like 2002, I guess, that I was going to go to Seattle Midwifery School, which at that point in time was one of the only midwifery schools that existed in our country. So I moved my young family to Seattle and was just like, I'm just going to do this. I want to get it done. At that point, I've been studying for long enough. And I'm like, I, this is my life. This is what I want to do. Um, shortly after moving to Seattle, I found out I was pregnant unexpectedly with my third son, who was due at the same time Seattle Midwifery School would have began. Um, I then chose to have my third son and not attend the midwifery school. But during that pregnancy, I moved into a community house with a woman who was due almost the same exact time as me, and she was having an assisted birth. And I was kind of like, well, what in the world is better than a home birth midwife, assisted birth? Like, what's unassisted birth? And again, this was, uh, you know, over 10 years ago, there wasn't anything other than a book by Laura Shanley called Unassisted Birth, really for a reference point. Now, there's many things that you can, you know, find in regards to a more free birth. and. I, through that, the summer, when I lived with that woman, like my world was turned upside down. 
she went on to tell me about how she'd had a first birth, her first child with a midwife, how she came away really traumatized. And it allowed me to see what I had been missing from my first two experiences. And it was that even though I was at home with lovely home birth midwives, I was still very much manipulated and controlled. But all it was almost worse because it was from this place of like insidious control where you think you aren't controlled, right? Because you have this woman whose whole life is dedicated to allowing women to have like empowered births. However, if you aren't addressing what happens between humans, you know, in intense situations and how we don't control other humans and all these psychological things that don't necessarily fit inside of any particular category, we still as humans often find it necessary to control, especially in a situation that feels fearful or feels like we don't know what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. And so during that pregnancy, I really was able to move through my first two births and heal and figure that out and went on to have a, not like a proper, I guess, again, like de defining some of these things might be really helpful, um, unassisted birth with my third child. And it was everything that I felt like I had missed in the first two. So at that point, it completely redirected where I was going with midwifery. And I was like, well, I want to help women have unassisted births. Like, how do you do this? What does this mean as a birth worker? Um, and within a few months after that, just through mutual friends, I found a particular school called the Matrona. And when I went to a workshop that was being put on by that school in the workshop, the woman who was teaching it, the woman who founded the program, she said, well, really the only reason I think people are at births is to write it down in the Akashic records. And I was like, what, you know, like, what's that? Like, that's, that's more pointing to what I'm looking for or what I felt in my third birth. And it became the witness, the space holder, which again, like that translates to the shaman, to the, to the ayahuascaro, to the person that really doesn't do anything, but holds everything. Right. And they know when to support, but they aren't just supporting because their role is to support. They're there as like the cell membrane. And so then I went on to study with this midwifery school to then become a part of the teaching staff to then become an administrator, all these things. I spent the next probably close to 10 years as a part of like that organization in particular and working to create another picture of what birth support could look like. Um, yeah, then I had a couple more kids that were also home births and maybe the last one is the baby that we had together, which was a pretty awesome birth, depending on time, we could talk about that a little bit more, but, um, in particular, then I was lit still on the West coast for the majority of the time I was just referring to. And then the woman who founded the school actually initially had began it in Asheville many years prior. And she was like, I'm moving back to Asheville. I want to keep this going you want to come with me and you can still have a job. And I was like, great. So we moved to Asheville. Um, the climate, I mentioned earlier that in North Carolina, home birth midwives are illegal unless you're a nurse midwife, which I'm not. And um, I'm not, I've never been a licensed midwife or a certified midwife. There's lots of different political, you know, definitions per state, per country, as far as what's legal, what's not. Um, in Washington state, I would have also been an illegal midwife. I'm an illegal midwife here. So upon moving here, part of an agreement that I had with the school was to actually not practice because you can teach. You can teach whatever you want. And that's not 
illegal, but to practice would be, and that could like potentially cause challenge for the school. So in moving here, I was teaching and then started to do a lot more with perinatal mental health, trauma work, you know, didn't lactation, childbirth classes, things like that, which was where I was really like spending most of my time when we connected. And then that continued to like roll into the school that we have now. So JD, when you say it's illegal, Mm -hmm. from the sense that if you are like physically or even if you're present at a birth, that's considered like be it basically like practicing medicine without a license type of yeah. a thing or because some people define a midwife now as like yeah and it's all very, yeah it's all very much based on the culture of each community and this is constantly changing within communities within states as laws you know evolve over time um there when I moved here there had been some midwives who were practicing for a number of years and they felt confident enough to have you know some advertising in town things like that however about four months after I was living here, there actually was a baby who passed away under the care of a home birth midwife. And it was one of like nas- a nationally known case where this midwife actually spent um, in total over 36 months, either on house arrest or actually in jail without any charges at all. And at the point in time when she was then was released and the details were a new district attorney actually came in and looked at the placenta pathology, which had been there the entire time, which stated that this midwife had nothing to do with the baby's death and let her out. So there's still, if you want to say witch hunts people in jail, this is happening all over our country. This even with licensed midwives, because then you get into like, well, are you still practicing under the, you know, the umbrella of what your license dictates. And ultimately, you are still under the medical model's care, a doctor's care. The doctors are determining whether you're safe as a midwife, whether you're technically illegal or an illegal would be in North Carolina, for example, a more direct and like a direct entry midwife used to be a term for that. Like and they used to actually say DEM um, or a lay midwife or I don't know. I mean, there's a variety of terms that continue to change. I mean, a lot of people don't use the word midwife anymore because the term midwife has become more of a medical term due to licensing and nurse midwifery, which is very much, you know, a very big gap from where true midwifery was, you know, 100 years ago or, you know, 50 years ago even. Um, So as far as like the illegal place in particular, it's very subjective. And in relation to that case that I just mentioned, it wasn't the family, the parents who were even upset or did anything legally against that midwife. It was actually the grandparents who then interacted with the state and the state then prosecuted the midwife. And regardless of the parents or any parent saying, please don't do anything to my midwife. We completely agreed to this. We did whatever, you know, it wouldn't matter because the state would step in. She was charged with murder because this baby had died. And there are, there are plenty now, actually, like at that point in Asheville, midwives definitely, you know, went back under a little bit more. And over the last five or so years, more people have come back out locally in our area. And um, there are people who are practicing. Um, And at any point, as far as being safe and doing so, regardless, I mean, the idea in the past has always been if you're, if you don't get paid, and you're there then you would just, you could always say you were a friend or, you know, a 
whatever you could tell yourself. Um, but if you're receiving any money, then you could be doing this thing that's potentially practicing medicine without a license. Um, and so then that gets into a, what a lot of people will like, I'm not doing it for money, but the amount of responsibility that you hold as a midwife to not take and receive appropriate compensation is also a really big issue for our culture at large. Like a midwife is holding a family's life and death on call for two to three months during the birthing time and then throughout her pregnancy and into the postpartum. I mean, no doctor even does that. And so to say, I'm not doing it without pay or you're going to do it for trade or we're going to find some other way. I mean, that also is just undermining what is happening. Um, and then it gets into, well, like can midwives, where I was mentioned a little bit before, like where is the midwife's capacity to actually hold space from the place of what maybe a birthing family truly needs to have this transformative experience of bringing in a life versus interfering or not. And um, yeah, <laughs> I, does that, what, how, how else can I help answer that question? Well, man, there's so many questions that come up for me. Um, I guess, Jessica, you asked initially uh, that also if, JD could say, what do you mean by mid midwifery? Mm -hmm. Maybe what I hear though in your response is when you talk about the unassistedness in it and being more a witness, mm -hmm. taking that approach. Um, if there's more, is there more you want to say about, because honestly, I'm, I'm, this is really new to me. You know, I don't actually don't even know how the standard medical process goes. We I mean, I've never, I was born obviously, but I, I haven't had a kid and Brandy and I don't intend to. And I mean, we, if we didn't have ever heard of this, we would have gone down that normal road of ultrasonograms and seeing a doctor and, you know, whatever goes on there. Um, but then there's this, there are these terms like doula and midwife and, and then, then a, a, a nurse midwife versus a regular midwife. And then there's, so maybe, I don't know if that might, that might be helpful for me is to, if you could walk me through some of those uh, gradations to where, to where you are at, basically. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so a doula is a relatively new term in the last 10 to 20 years, and it's someone who offers technically just emotional or, I mean, physical in a sense of like supporting with different birthing positions, or I can, you know, massage you or put a hot washcloth on some part of your body. But it's most, it's more of this like supportive role that's not bringing in any type of, um, assessments or diagnoses or interpretations of like the actual birth and gestational process. So that, and that also, I mean, a lot of these things can get very gray and the regulations that are putting on these things are all also very new. So because doulas happened, there needed to be a regulating body for doulas. So a bunch of people who felt like they had enough criteria to be a regulating body created a regulating body to regulate doulas nationally, but national doula regulation isn't required, it isn't necessary. Then there's, you know, state doula accreditation programs and all of this is just happening, you know, organically. Like I could become, a, I am, you know, I can certify doulas because I say I can type of thing. Um, but then that becomes, well, what does a doula actually do or not in these places of like the national certification, for example, 
you can't massage now or use herbs because now there's certifications for massage and certifications for herbology. And if you cross them, then you would be doing practicing some other, you know, modality that you aren't able, you know, or whatever, you know, qualified to do. Um, so then you bring in the midwifery piece and that would be somebody who would take on more of those medical type aspects or diagnoses or assessments to during the birth and gestation postpartum period. So, I mean, I can say very specific examples to help with that. Whereas like a midwife would be listening to a baby's heartbeat, like during pregnancy and during birth, which is referred to as fetal heart tones and giving a mother or a family their interpretation and recommendation around like the health of their baby based on the fetal heart tones. That's actually one of the number one ways that they determine baby's health is by listening to a baby's heart during the time period of gestation and birth. A doula technically should, would not, should not be listening to fetal heart tones and giving the family an interpretation of what they feel like those heart tones mean. But then, you know, anybody can listen to a heartbeat, right? Like you can buy the equipment on Amazon and you can look up what fetal heart tones mean. And so it gets, it can get really gray and none of that necessarily matters, right? Until you bring in a legal system that might want to say you're doing something you're not, again, qualified to do. Um, so then, yes, the midwif the midwife would potentially hold more of these other types of assessment processes around a woman during her pregnancy and birth and postpartum period that can be quite similar in maybe more traditional medical ways. Now, um, well, then I can say, so each state, there's a national certification for midwives. So you can become a certified professional midwife, which is nationally. Then each state can choose if they want to recognize that certification or not. So in North Carolina, they don't recognize that certification. They don't recognize anything. So anybody who's not a nurse midwife, which is somebody who has become a registered nurse and then basically taking a master's program in midwifery, if you're not that, then you can't practice what we call midwifery in our state. Um, in Colorado, they have registered midwives, and that's how the state accepts CPMs. Um, in Washington, they have licensed midwives. So it really like depends on where you're at. And then also, again, how the community enforces what's really happening within the different midwifery options that someone may choose. Um, I don't, let me see. Like, and then like the medical model of birth where a nurse midwife here can practice at home if they want. So you can have a home birth in North Carolina with a nurse midwife. They do have to be overseen by a doctor, which again, makes it, very difficult also to operate outside of the medical model because the doctor still has to answer to who they're licensed with, which would be the medical board. And the medical board has a very different perspective on how birth should unfold than this other opposite end of midwifery. So then all of it can get really co-opted and messed up. And to me, that was a big part of, well, how Nurse, mid, nurse midwives or even licensed midwives now because then they're following still this medical model to get recognition to become licensed or certified, how much they're interfering with the process versus being able to hold space because the medical model is a proactive model. You're looking for the problem to solve it before it happens, but birth isn't, there's no problem in birth you know, unless there is. So it's like, it's very contradictory where we create a scenario then where we're see it as a problem when really it's not.
And that has become like a huge, a huge disease of what we see pregnancy and childbirth to even be when there is no pathology present unless, you know, in the rare circumstances there are, and then we can do something about it. But it's been, um, yeah, really taken over, I guess you could say. How else can I clarify or help with that? Well, and there's a whole other, there's the whole other aspect of the birth centers too. Yeah. And the birth which centers, is... which is another, which in so many ways are a blessing. And I know plenty of people who've had babies at birth centers. And usually it's just like in our state, only nurse midwives can work at birth centers and Washington state licensed midwives or nurse midwives can work at birth centers. Um, but what I have seen over the years more often than not, in, unless you are like homeless, which some women are and want to have a baby at a birth center rather than a hospital, or if you have like a very specific set of circumstances where your home is just totally not suitable for birth, what often I'm seeing is women who really want a home birth. Like when you read their birth plan and what they want at a birth center is they want a birth that's autonomous where they can you know, have themselves be the dictator of the process but then they're putting themselves in a birth center most, most of the time because they're not, you know, they still have fear around the process. So it's like the birth center is a little bit safer than my house, but it's not quite the hospital yet. But birth centers are almost always governed by the local hospital or some type of medical institution or medical system of like checks and balances. And so it's some, some people have termed it like a, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like you're going there thinking you're getting a certain thing, but really you're getting the medical model hidden. Like it would be better just to go to the hospital because you know what you're going to get. Um, and so then you can be more prepared for it to interface with it. Just to go back, I just want to kind of like highlight the licensing and certification aspect of this that keeps coming up because, and you probably know, way more about kind of the history JD of, of midwifery and sort of like how the, the male doctor, right. Kind of entering and pushing out traditional midwives who basically were doing, you know, umbrella term. Like they, you know, like you said, like there was no such thing as a doula, like they were doing herbs, they were doing probably massage and whatever. Right. They were, they were like wise women, right. A lot of the time who were, extremely experienced and kind of chosen by that community in a lot of cases. And then, so you had the, the male doctor kind of coming in, um, pushing them out. And then over time, right. The, the licensing laws were a huge part of the way that they were able to sort of fold those sort of community members into the medical model. Right. And like suddenly, Oh, you have to have this piece of paper, right. Which is issued yeah. by, you know, the state or issue, you know, and, and, and I mean, we go back a couple of centuries, the church was huge as well. Um, but I just think it's like, it's not a going, like, this isn't a new thing The like, it sounds so complicated and, you know, you got to have a state license in this way. And sometimes it's recognized, sometimes it's not. And it's like, yeah, I mean, of course, all, you know, all of our legislation just <laughs> across the board is super messy, but it's, I mean, it's really quite, I don't, know, I don't know what the right word is like in, just insidious like if you look back and see that the like the the very very purposeful way that licensure and, and certification was used as a way to just really just um like 
kind of drive that like final blow to traditional midwifery in terms of status and like capability to actually do that work, at least to do it out in the open. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm thinking too, like this, with this conversation, like a, a word that gets used a lot in kind of like alternative birth um, communities and stuff is like medwife, right? Of like this idea that, okay, a midwife, like usually referring to a licensed midwife is really like, it's not really a traditional midwife in like the original sense of the word at all, because you're reporting to a doctor, ultimately you're, you're, I mean, you're loyal to yeah, and you're looking for you're loyal. You're loyal to the state. You are, yeah. or you're liable, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're liable. Honestly. You've invested at that point tens of thousands of dollars to gain this recognition, to gain the license, the certification, and you're put in that rock in the hard place of like, well, am I doing good? Is it better than doing nothing? Like, or at least I'm offering something at home versus that. Um, but right now, I know I need to. For example, I'll go back to the heart tones. Like now, like because of my license, it says I have to take heart tones every 15 minutes at this stage in labor. But, you know, I know instinctually and intuitively about birth from this other place of like wise, energetic woman's work that if I go in and try to take heart tones at this moment, it's going to interrupt something. It's going to interrupt the limbic process of how all of this birth, you know, is unfolding. But I have to go take heart tones right now because if my chart gets pulled and I haven't done it every 15 minutes at this stage in labor, labor I could lose my license. So you get into, I mean, that's, I never became licensed or certified because I felt like watching this and I don't know if I'm right, you know, like I'm, so it's up for negotiation, but like watching this time and time again, I felt like I would be, I would be a less of a midwife if I was licensed because I would have to follow these things. And that would be who I was serving versus serving the family or the mother. And I would bring in this contradiction all over the place. But again, that's just me. There are plenty of midwives that I honor and respect and that's their path and they feel like it's working for them. But I do think it's really important stuff to be talking about. Um, when I was teaching more within the midwifery school, I mentioned like we would have workshops for for practicing midwives, not just women who wanted to become midwives, who wanted a different perspective. And we would like go through the spiel and talk about, well, like, what do you do? Well, you're, you know, holding the space, you're the smell membrane, you're the shaman. And they'd be like, well, what do I do then? I'm like, well, you don't really do anything. But that's the most powerful role, don't you see? <laughs> like, that's the better. Like, no, you know, like, what do I do? Like, I have all these tools and these skills and these things. I'm like, well, you might need them, but your work is to learn how you need them and when, and not just like you do them because that's what you're told is the way to do it to be most safe. Because it's not. It's not. You have to return to this aspect of what birth is, of what, about being a human that there is an element of unknown, of magic, like of uh, still, even if you didn't believe in magic, of all kinds of science that we have no idea or don't understand at all yet at this point in time. And so giving space for that. And at one point in my midwifery, when I was in that school, learning to be a midwife very early on, like I had a moment where it hit me where it's like, there is no way I could ever know more about a woman or family's birth than they know. There's absolutely impossible. Like, and it's my job to learn how to follow their energy, to know when they may need a skill that I have, but I can't know more. And I can't come into this thinking that I know more. And that's like one of the key differences, right? 
in all of this and in all the training and how a birth, you know, a birth facilitator allows themselves to be at that birth or even during the pregnancy, not just the birth, the pregnancy too. I want to check if Eduardo, do you have any questions or things you want to ask about this? Because I do have questions if you don't. Go ahead. You, you can, I, I want to continue with this line of thought. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, first off, again, this is fascinating to listen to. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's, for me, it's unfolding, like what you're talking about. Because I think, Jay, you said this, you gave this long spiel about midwifery. That was a little, I think I got it, but then I could, I was like confusing. But it has been necessary to be part of this conversation for me to begin to understand what you're describing as this, this uh, shaman person. Um, I guess the question that would come for me is, can we walk it back then? And I'm not asking this as a diagnostic, like how would I find, but really to help me understand the process. So a person, a woman gets pregnant, whether they have a husband or a wife or whatever, whether they have an, a, a partner or not, let's, what, what would they do to explore this unassisted place, this shaman place? How might they know? Because what, what does the other system say? Here's my doctorate. I got my credentials. I got this. That's the doctor. Okay. Then there's the mid midwife who's licensed here's my here's the here's my yelp page and here's all the people i here's my license that tells me i'm 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 but that's just ways of the state coming in and controlling the process and saying it's ours not yours so if you wanted to stay out of that what what does that person what does that woman do uh how how does she proceed in this in this kind of world uh to find a shaman when you even said that shaman how do I know I'm even, <laughs> it's, it, it's becomes, I mean, I'm not saying as a position of doubting, but could you walk me through how does one then proceed that maybe the person says, I don't need anyone. Like I, I'm just going to have my kid and I'm going to have my kid in my room and it could be that right. Or help me understand what, how a person in a free world would, mm -hmm. how this, how would this process unfold? Well, there's an aspect to life, right, that we live in where we look to altered states to help us answer questions such as those, right, as humans. Like we look to a state of different consciousness than our waking reality to help us answer big questions about our life, esoteric questions, et cetera, et cetera. Altered states can look like many things. They can look like sleep, right, in our dreams. They can look like praying. They can look like going for a walk in the woods. They could look like playing golf, right? But we all do this. It's a very important part of being a human in relation to how we walk through life. And, you know, and we like to think that in more ancient times, there was more of this. There was more spirituality that was like throughout cultures rather than religion and the way that we see it now as a tool or an access point to like help us answer questions like this. Um, but it's still there. And when you look at the experience and the state of a woman when she's pregnant, it's a very altered state of consciousness that increase the change in endocrine hormones and neurohormones in your cardiology, like everything changes and adjusts and you become, if you can even blend science with spirituality, this is the time. Like this is the place where even the people who are the most scientific among us don't know what's going on. There's, I mean, we've, at this point in time, we've probably all heard of DMT 
And DMT is actually a natural occurring thing in our bodies. It's naturally occurring in plants. It's all over the place. But right currently at this state in time in our like evolution, I guess, again, you could say, and humans, when DMT is released in our brains, it's immediately reabsorbed. It's, there's another chemical that gets released that takes it out essentially of our brain. So it's like, it's there, but we can't have it. And one might think that that's because maybe we're not mature enough to have that yet, or what it would it look like if we're walking around in life in a, a free flow DMT state? It would look very different than it looks right now, right? However, there's a lot of research on when is DMT released and it's allowed to stay longer. And this is like the near-death experience. Some people may have this during you know, intense meditative states or other types of you know, spiritual practice or cultivation of the altered state where DMT may be allowed to stay longer. And that's where somebody comes back and they're like, whoa, guess what just happened to me, right? And it's life-changing. You have those moments. We all do. It's actually also released during pregnancy more and then during birth in the birthing mother and during birth in the baby. And looking at this as, you know, it's been termed the spirit molecule, like it is an access point between this realm of existence and another realm of existence. It's the time when the portals open, like Jay was saying, for a baby to come in. And the DM DMT is the vehicle for that. So to answer your question, it's not necessarily straightforward. It's not necessarily simple in some ways. And then in others, it can be very practical because right now we have media like we've never had it before. We have podcasts. There's some incredible podcasts that exist all around free birth, unassisted birth. Um, Jessica mentioned one at this point. There's a handful of them that you can just start getting information. You can start unraveling what's inside of yourself to feel like, you know, to see what feels right. You can meet other women. You can talk with them. There's so many like abundant, like the abundance of social media that allows communication around like, what was your birth like? What was my birth like? That actually is creating this sense of community that we didn't have even, you know, 50, 100 years ago when the industrial revolution took over and really shifted the course of birth. So the process of when someone finds themselves pregnant and they want to know what to do, the first thing that I would say is start your spiritual practice. What does that mean to you? If it means swimming at the Y, great, do it more. You know, start journaling, start looking within to unravel your, you know, whatever trauma you might have, because we all have it. It's a part of life. Start looking and asking about your own birth, the births in of, you, you know, you, your mother's birth, the births within your family, because those things travel through us and start asking people, you know, what their births were like. If you have no context of what you might want. Just start seeing what's around you and what's available and then running it through your own compass every day. Like, does that feel right? Does that not feel right? Do I want to read another book? Do I want to ask another question? And from there, you know, looking into your community as far as what the climate, you know, again, asking questions, asking other mothers, asking people, you know, what's the climate like for here for birth? What's the hospital like? You know, what are there midwives? Just beginning to really ask those questions and you know, finding your way through that process. It's definitely isn't, I mean, at least for me, obviously, it's not something that I would say should be done without thought, right? But it can be. And for the majority of people in the modernized world, it is done with very little thought, right? You are pregnant, you go to the obstetrician, they tell you what to do. They most likely tell you when you have to have your baby. 
they will force your baby to come out of you if you don't have your baby during the time they say you should have your baby. And then you go home and you figure out how to be a parent on your own. Well, that, there's a prescribed track that's available very, yes. if you, if you know, if you don't actively seek out and, you know, honestly, it's, it seems to be, you know, both a, like such a, it's such a personal journey for every family, for every mother. And, you know, there's like you were saying earlier, you can't begin to know more about that woman or that baby's journey or that family's journey than they do. And so, you know, to just, I guess to just be mindful of this, we don't want to automatically just assume that we know that the alternative route is best for everybody. Right. I mean, it's, it's so dependent on where somebody's at and to try and thrust this idea of we have to do it outside the system for this other person is just the same thing happening <laughs> from a different angle, you know? And so it's it like, it is really because we have spent, you know, JD and I have spent time together as a couple consulting and counseling other couples. And it's just such a, um, such an independent process for each person and what they are, what they need what they're ready to receive in, in whatever direction. And so, you know, all one can do is just be there and, you know, hold that space. And so, yeah, that's my, I think it's like it's such a hard question too, because like you said, Andy, like in a free world, but right. like right. in the world that we're in, right. I mean, we live in a society where like, we don't trust mothers. We don't trust women. We don't trust birth. We don't so, trust ourselves. Most of them. I mean, we, we don't know. trust ourselves. And even like, I mean, and you may uh, not, yeah. may not like experience that like fear mongering or whatever well, I mean, outside, in this so, lane, but like, you, you know about it in all these other tracks. And it's like, when I heard that question, I'm like, well, I mean, of course I may change my mind, but like, I can't wait to give birth. And I know exactly what I want to do. But then I think about, okay, well, I've, I've met doulas, I've met midwives, I've met, I've heard all sorts of birth stories. I'm in the free birth society and I, I just have been exposed to a really wide spectrum of birth stories. If I were, you know, if I'd gotten pregnant at like 21, I mean, I wouldn't have had a fucking clue. I just would have been ushered right through the system, just like everybody else, right? Which maybe would have been great or maybe would have been extremely traumatic or something in between. But it's like when you're, when you're not, given those other options when you don't, you know, I mean, even just simple things like I, I didn't even know like my birth story. Like I never really had I, like sat down and asked my mom, like, you know, I hear little bits and pieces and stuff, but I, I like not until I was like 30 plus years old had I, had I asked that question. Like we're, we're so dissociated from our own like lineage and our, you know, I mean, just think about the women in your life, like it's still taboo to talk about like breastfeeding and periods and stuff, like let alone, you know, the actual physiological, let alone the spiritual dimensions of birth. So I don't know. I think it, it, it should be an easy answer to that question of like, do whatever the fuck you want. Like, the woman should get to decide what to, to birth however the fuck she wants to birth, but it's it's not at all that easy because we're just 
so fear-mongered. And if you even just like express the tiniest interest in something alternative in this realm, in a lot of cases, like you will be met with extreme fear-mongering threats, you know, like going back to the the grandparents that like call the state on their own family. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. unfortunately, I don't think that far removed from a common mentality. And then, I mean, the, the places that I like to talk about a lot too, I think we mentioned this earlier, is like, why? You know, why is that the state of birth? And it's because it is the most powerful thing that we do other than die, right? And those two things actually, right, like in our current culture are very hidden away behind the doors and they're not common and we can't talk about them. And again, why? They're very highly Um, managed. They're very highly managed, for sure. And it's like our, when you get into like some of the things again, where if, okay, so we, I'm a newly pregnant mom and I'm starting to ask in my community and maybe I'm showing some interest in alternative options and somebody says, oh, well, that's so dangerous. And oh, what's, don't you want a safe and healthy birth? Don't you want your baby to live? And like, would, would anybody say, no, I don't want my baby to live, but that's like where it goes to. And still like the standard of a good birth is everything was okay. Right. Like we all came out. Okay. Well, nobody died. Nobody died. You know I mean? That's how was your birth? Well, you know, we don't really talk about most things, but we're all okay. And like, there's nothing, no other time period in our life. That's all right. Like when you go through high school, how much time is spent on what did you study? How many essays did you write? How many college prep tests did you take? In order to prepare for the next stage of your life, we don't just go through high school with no conversation, graduate. Well, I made it out alive. Yeah. Great job. Onward. Like that's not the prerequisite. But that's for still college. like <laughs> Like if you ask a mom and who had trauma or who had a birth that didn't go the way that they wanted, thank God I made it to the hospital. Thank God they saved me. We're all okay. And no, no other questions are asked. Yet, if you look at like the aspect of any of like the primal health research or many other people, it like we mentioned earlier, it's the most potent time. It's the time we should be asking the most questions more than any other time period in our lives because it shapes us more than any other time period. Us as the new baby, us as the parents, us as the family, us as how we are going to raise this child in society. Like every moment that a baby is separated from that natural experience of coming out of their mother, being with their mother, and only nothing else really needs to happen 90 some percent of the time. Like the baby's taken away, the baby's dried off, a hat's put not put on the baby, the umbilical cord is cut, the baby's like hands are washed. The mother's told when to. Put the mother's it, no. I mean, this is after birth. Well, yeah, yeah I mean that's that's, that's the placenta is thrown out. The placenta is thrown out. Yes. The baby's put in a blanket. The mother has a shirt on because she doesn't want him to see her. Every single one of those teeny tiny things is fracturing that bond. It's fracturing the baby's sense of I can trust the world. And it's fracturing the mother and thus also the father or the partner's sense of, I know how to take care of this baby. No, you don't. I need to take it from you. No, you don't. I need to wipe its hands off. No, you don't. And all of those things that we do, whether it's putting a hat on, wiping its hands off, cutting the cord, you know, delaying breastfeeding for some unknown reason is going to have ripple effects on this baby's physiology for the rest of its life. Like the immune system is established during birth. We wipe off amniotic fluid, we give the baby a bath, they've lost all of that microbiome. They've lost the amniotic 
fluid on their body, which helps to direct their sense of smell, which helps them breastfeed. I mean, it's just like countless, the things that are set in this beautiful system to help life go on and help the families become a family and protect life that are just fractured. Like the word fractured is what I say the most because it feels like it works the best to describe what's going on with that. You guys are awesome. I'm just looking at the time. Yeah. I want to make sure you guys get to sleep. Um, so Andy and Eduardo, what, what else do you want to ask? I, uh, Eduardo, go for it, man. I mentioned the placenta because that's something I think is taboo, especially in a lot of, um, like even having the discussion, I have a friend who gave birth at home and she, she's an older person now. And she's always tells me her experience here and giving, having given birth in San Francisco with her midwife, Beverly, uh, who was very well known here for giving these births uh, at home in San Francisco. And she the first time, because I told her when I met her, I'm vegetarian. She said, well, you could eat a placenta then. And I said, what do you mean? It's the only un unkilled meat there is. Yeah. And I thought, what? Yeah. <laughs> and she just spoke about it matter-of-factly like that. And uh, But no one talks about that or no mm -hmm. one, people throw it out in, in yeah. hospital, right? Like they don't think of, I have friends who have even buried it. They want to have some spiritual connection to it. But it isn't considered. It's something that's just, uh, yeah. I, I mean, know. the placenta is is incredible. I mean, it is it is, and there's so much lore around it. It's our twin in a lot of cultures. It's like the thing that's holding our life throughout pregnancy. If you've heard of a lotus birth, there is that's the whole practice of not even cutting the cord at all because of the energetic connection that the placenta and the umbilical cord will dry up and fall off all on their own, just like the umbilical cord stump does that's left when you do cut the cord. And there's another a practice that we we used to do, I still do when time to time called placenta reading, but it's actually like a reading of the whole, like the story of the baby, the story of the family. Like it's incredible. Like I have had the most profound experiences with people looking at their placenta and honoring the placenta. And so then there's this this lore and spiritual components. I mean, if you look at which we aren't talking about much and is way more taboo than anything we've even really touched upon, but like the nefarious aspects of our lives currently and placentas aren't always just thrown away. The blood and the umbilical cord and the stem cells and all those things are actually used quite often for lots of things that maybe we don't want to think that that would ever happen. Um, so there's there's a lot to that, that it's like, a very precious, powerful thing that again has been cut from us, severed, taken away. We don't know what's going on with it. And there's like a huge movement, especially like even in hospital births at this point for women to say, I want to take my placenta with me. There's, there's burying, there's charring it. You can make a tincture out of it. You can take a, make a homeopathic remedy out of it. You can dry it and take it in capsules, which is a more of a Chinese medicine perspective of like replenishing hormones. You can use it to help in midwifery. To help stop a hemorrhage immediately after birth because of the amount of hormones that are in a placenta you can take a small piece of it and the mother can swallow it and there's there's so much well they make a lot of money off of those too which you yeah. know even if you don't want to participate in any of that like spiritual or physiological like use of it um wouldn't it be nice for women to be compensated for the money that that hospital is going to sell you know, and make off of that precious organ mm -hmm. Well, the 
the, a few things that come to mind. Um, first, when you when you talked about how the way birth and pregnancy is almost spoke is almost conceived of as a disease and and conceived of that way, um, it really just again this whole COVID period, this disease has been so much a, an excuse for control. Um, it really it really just highlighted for me that again, if you can get people to believe that this very natural process is more like a disease process that, oh, thank God we survived, which is the outcome, you know, everyone's healthy, you know, um, then that, that to me just seems like that theme keeps coming up over and over again. It's to, it's to tell people this lie, a fear lie, it's around death and disease. Um, and then if to say to a person, oh, you're not going to a doctor, aren't you afraid of dying? I, that's what I've been hearing about masks and and right. and vaccines. Like right. you're not getting that, aren't you afraid of dying? And yet that very thing that they're saying that I should that I should do is actually something that's going to harm me. Um, and it's it's inverted, right? So again, that's another parallel I hear in, in this conversation, and it also makes me wonder about things like postpartum depression. Like, what's that really about? Like, that's supposedly something that's all women, um, many women have as a result of pregnancy. And I'm like, maybe there's something connected to this very disappointing experience about something that should have been like a living experience that was closer to something very unliving and very, very unnatural. Um, and last, I guess I'm going to check with Brandy about whether I can share this, but um, I think she'll be okay, but we'll see. Um, I'll check with her. When I first met her, um, you know, we would talk about our childhoods and talk about how our childhoods affect our, affected our, our lives. And I would go back to six-year-old and eight-year-old, and she would go back to her birth. And I was like, what? You know, you would go back to a birth experience? She goes, yeah, there was really controlling things that happened during my birth experience that have affected me, like, my whole life. And, and I now, I, I, I was not sure what she was talking about, but I've come to understand it more deeply. And she wasn't kidding. Like, that, that's where she went. That's where she, her story started for her. Like, and... Um, and she sees it as, as a really very thick, uh, formative thing, in many ways negative, but something that she's been trying to make sense of and try to recover from her whole life. Um, and I'd never heard that before. Um, but I will say that, and this comes back to me and Brandy, the process that you described how a, a woman, if she was pregnant, how she would make her way of, of, of having insight, of trying to get clear with yourself, for me was no different. Then the process I had to go through in in deciding that me and Brandy were going to be life partners, like that process, it, it, there were there were moments of insight and there was moments of like brought it, there were moments times of like uh, slow growth and there were moments of insight where I was like yes you know, and it, so I was very helpful for me for you to describe it that way because I was like yeah we make decisions like this all the time and important decisions but they require a, a, a its own gestation that isn't just linear. It it has all sorts of moments where you oh big insights and I did I had I had weird stories that allowed me that I had it saw in my dreams that helped me understand that Brandy was going to be my partner for life you know and that was necessary mm -hmm. so it was just this this conversation has just made me think about a lot of things great <laughs> awesome and I mean just the, I can touch upon a little bit more around like, yes, we do remember our births. Maybe we can't articulate that, but there, there's a whole um, organization like category of psychology that's peri perinatal psychology 
it's like premium perinatal like health that looks at the perinatal time one's birth to unravel the patterns of your life there's a lot of research done that for example shows the way that someone this is kind of you know icky but the way that someone actually may commit suicide is in direct relation to birth interventions that happened whether it's through like medication or a substance there was a more of an increase of like medication or pharmaceuticals at their birth if it's asphyxiation it had to do with like breathing issues at birth i mean it's just wild when you start like going down like many of these things right like what you don't know you don't know that's there when you start looking and it's again it's just the com like it's the conversations and around all of it and when jay and i were talking before this and just like what's important what, what do we cover because there's so much and we did go to the place which i was it you know i'm part of what you shared initially like of how this is related to the school and it's like helping supporting i don't know the best word but offering an opportunity or an example to be able to ask well what don't i know and what choices do I have that I don't think I have, right? Like, as we're told, you can't homeschool or, you, you know, the, the idea around what a child should do for schooling is very much modeled in a particular way in our culture. And it's very much modeled that you don't really have a lot of choice around that. Like, you still get letters saying you have to vaccinate your kids to go to school, which is absolutely not true. And so the same thing is with birth. Like, no, you don't have to do these things that our culture says. You don't have to do what a midwife says. You don't have to do any of it. You need to find your own way. And how do we support each other in finding our own way and into walking into these, you know, the aspects of life that are unknown and then the big ones that are transformative and what, you know, how do we as a species help preserve what's like sacred in that, which is necessary for humans to exist in any way, shape or form like we've been existing. Um, there's, you know, we didn't, we haven't really talked much about like actually what happens in a typical hospital scenario. It's very manipulated. There's a lot of drugs that are usually used or two in particular. And this is, I mean, this is standard. And then there's a lot of cesarean births, right? Like in Brazil and China, cesarean births are like, all, like 50% now. And most other countries, it's about a third. Um, but from, from the standpoint of like, how birth has been versus how it is now. One one thing that I was just recently reading that I found was fascinating. So the bones of the pelvis have different diameters depending on where you're at as a baby or if you're removing through the pelvic bones of a woman. And those diameters in centimeters actually match up to different diameters on the head. And like we used to call it like the sacred geometry of the pelvis because it is like perfect with an amount of centimeters that a baby's head moves through the, the birth, I don't wanna say canal ever again, the, the birth, the bones of the pelvis to be born. And this has been like this forever, right? Like this is the system that was designed and works. And there's the movements of labor, they call them the cardinal movement of, movements of labor, how a bet at the baby's head flexes, extends, the shoulders move, all these things. And it happens all the time. That's how we're all here, right? There's a lot to why it's like that in relation to what's important for the lungs to be squeezed, for the baby to move through this process, for the microbiome, all, all of that. That's one part. But the amount of cesarean sections that are now happening, and there's a lot of things, right, that are eliminated through that, which are endocrine, which are microbiome, immunology, all this stuff. 
But one in particular piece is now a baby's head doesn't have to go through this particular passageway anymore with these constraints or, you know, size barriers. So we're seeing, and then you go back to the, this primal period where you have exponential change in human composition, whether it's physical or hormonal or anything, that babies' heads are now bigger. And, you know, there, there's like an increase in head size. And now there's like these conversations and thoughts around like, well, if we don't have this diameter, these diameters to move through, now evolution will say our heads can keep getting bigger, which will allow bigger neocortex, you know, aspects of our brain, which people who are, you know, maybe considered more transhumanist actually are really excited about, because then that means our neocortex can grow bigger than it ever could before in, ev in the evolution or the existence of human beings. However, larger neocortex, you know, neocortex size is related to less empathy, higher ADHD, higher autism. Like it's just, but in a transhumanistic world, those things aren't really necessary. So you get into all these like questions around like, well, what's important for humans in relation to where we're going? You know, I have a particular perspective that probably is similar to yours more so than somebody else who might think that our heads should get really big so we can do math problems quicker. But I don't know. Again, it's like, it's just a lot of stuff to think about and talk about that feels really important, <laughs> important to be talking about. I don't want to end on that scary note. So yeah, maybe, I mean, we can keep going, you know, as long as like 11, that's, you know. No, well, I was just going to ask, because like, uh, I mean, I have seen, maybe it's just my own bias of like the spheres I've been hanging out in, but it does seem like there is in the past few years, especially a sort of increased resurgence or at least interest in home birth, in um, free birth, unassisted birth, all that kind of stuff. Um, partly obviously because of the lockdowns in a weird way, yeah. I think there's yeah. sort of a convergence there. But um, I don't know, like, I know you're not necessarily attending births right now, JD, but like you have been saying, it's so this is all so connected to what you're doing with the school and it's connected to so many other, you know, kind of alternative ways of thinking and ways of creating that are cropping up, I think all over the world, really. So are you, I don't know, like, what do you, you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you see? Are you hopeful about kind of the birth, the future of birth? Um, what's, what's on your mind when you think about just kind of the the current way I, of the I feel like I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm hopeful for the children in our school. I'm hopeful for people finding their way to what feels right and true to them and then, you know, the future of humanity, truly. And I do think that there are more options in relation to what we, we know what one calls free birth or unassisted birth. And I think that's fucking phenomenal. Like I came to a place really within my midwifery and my um like my third birth would be completely unassisted my fourth i had a dear friend who had some midwifery experience and then my fifth i had that same woman come back um however i do think that you know how i've been promoting or speaking or like suggesting people might consider when having a baby is having a free birth and having you know, people there that you want to be there, that you feel the most comfortable with. And whatever that means for you. I mean, some, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting with, with the idea of going from home birth to unassisted birth. Mm -hmm. 
to then free birth. And then it's like, it's really like a personal birth, you know, because it's like, it's yours. It's your, there's with, with the freedom, there's not rules or restrictions because like you know in order for you to have an unassisted birth you can't have xyz right and it gets into like well is that really an unassisted birth because like you had somebody in the closet you know like it's, <laughs> it's i don't know but it, yeah well, your kid ran in and gave you a cookie like <laughs> yeah and you know another another piece that we haven't really touched on that that jd and i have spent a lot of time talking about over the years is you know, what, what the role of the father or the partners are in this situation. And, you know, we, we, with what JD was doing with the Matrona, a lot of what they would talk about is, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to use the term father and mother because that's our story, but like the father's role would be to, in a way, you know, ask ask him, what is the father? Or what, who do you think is in charge of a birth? Like, who do you think is like in charge? If that makes sense, if I can define that, like who would be the one to be able to say yes, no, like legally even like. Oh, well, the way it seems to work is the doctor now, but you just mean what we would, what we would. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, some people would say the doctor, some people would say, well, the mom, of course, she's in charge. What? Mother, baby, dad, I don't know, but I mean, I think there's like. Yeah, I'm just think, thinking about um, that idea of like holding space and yeah. like what it might be a, a shaman like figure, like a birth attendant or someone. But it, it, I think for a lot of people, it's also their partner of like yeah. somebody to protect that container so that you can go into the portal and be whatever you, you know, do your thing. Right. Um, so I didn't go on. What were you going to say, though, MJ? Uh, and I, I would just have said. If you had asked me four years ago or three years ago, I'd have said a medical doctor. If you ask me now, I think I would have just said the mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you, I mean, legally oh. in our country, it's the father and it has to be a male human. It cannot be some, a non-male human who you say is your partner. That won't work. Like if you are in a situation where, for example, a medical procedure was being like told to you that this had to happen, right? Like you have to have, let's do cesarean right now or your baby will die. The mom can't say no because the mom is still legally considered like hysterical in our country. Like even if the mom's screaming, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. She's not of right and sound mind. The grandmother can't say it. The partner can't say it. The doula can't say it. The midwife can't say it. Like the only one who legally can say that is the father. Still, which I don't mean this could maybe change you. Well, it's it's how it's tied into. And then like the spiritual component of the guardian, right, of the process. And that's where you were starting to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the the legal aspect that has its own story that, you know, we know has many layers and is, you know, oftentimes very difficult to parse out what the meaning is and and, you know it's got all kinds of implications with that but the the way that we have talked about it and the way that we have what we have arrived at is that there's there's this anchoring of the process that involves the father in this way where so you know we have this we have this child that is being birthed 
and this child is made up of parts of the mother and parts of the father and this child is in another until they're birthed into this world they're kind of in another dimension or another realm and so the mother is the birth in the birthing process is going into a altered state in which you know is framed as hysteria from from one perspective but is also framed you know from a from a more spiritual perspective it's this traversing worlds essentially and so the the role of the mother is not to necessarily operate solely on this plane to the point where she would be commenting on medical procedures and you know details of the of the 3d the mundane world the only person that really has that connection and that insight to both the mother and the child is the father and so they're here as an anchor they're here as a a translator um a protector and so you know like like you were saying earlier that you know no you can't know more about Mm -hmm. that mother or that baby or that family's birth right the ones that do know are the baby the mother and the father and so that's really where one would need to look for the guiding principles to figure out what is needed for this transformational experience to unfold. And so that that's just a you know a piece that we have spent a lot of time talking about. It's almost it's almost like kind of its own category here because so much of the process of birth does have to do with the baby, mm-hmm. which is inside the mother you know the the baby the most research that we can conclude at this point is that the baby is who initiates labor right because that is its whole thing like when do we go when are we in labor how are we in labor who's doing it can i you know make it happen quicker is usually what people are asking it you know (laughs) whether it's the mom the midwife or a doctor or a lawyer um but really it's the baby and any time anything is done to change the process of labor, whether it's start labor, speed it up, slow it down, is working against what that baby is asking for and what that baby needs. And like I mentioned, the most common thing that we do is induce labor, even with midwives, you know, taking castor oil, getting acupuncture, herbs homeopathy, all of those things are ushering something. And it's, again, it's everybody's journey to do what they feel is right and best for them. But to be very clear that, you know, if you're potentially inducing something that's not yet ready to happen, the whole process is something you're going to be working against rather than with. And to what degree is, you know, up for negotiation. But if you're starting off this, you know, the journey of birth, working against what's natural, you're most likely going to continue to have increased challenge throughout the process than if you weren't working against it because you're trying to force something that wasn't quite ready to do it on its own in the divine way that it wanted to. I don't know how I went there, but <laughs> like well it's like yeah. we, we would we would listen to in a in a perfect situation, we would listen to the baby. Yeah. And by association, that's going to involve a lot of listening to the mother because she's close in proximity and enmeshed in a way with that baby that is however we do get into a realm of things that we're not used to 
navigating. We're, we're navigating realms that we don't fully understand. So the next place then to look is going to be the, the biological father because energetically, spiritually, biologically, all of those things, they're, they're part of that process in a way that no one else is. And so that isn't how <laughs> the father is framed. I mean, we've talked about this a lot in like in a lot of movies, sitcoms, mainstream culture, the father is framed as this like kind of bumbling fool that, you know, is passing out at the sight of what's happening and incompetent. And, you know, it's that's also been degraded in this way where the father isn't, um, you know, portrayed as this archetypal protector, archangel type figure that is, you know, primordial and, and powerful and, and beautiful and all of the things, just like the ways that the mother is dismissed. And, you know, so like the whole container is, has been, you know, made to be perceived as less than when really it's this like powerhouse of transformational altered state energy that we could be, you know, it's, that's life changing. That's changing your life. You know, really like that's how you change someone's life is allow them to be born in a way, or, you know, allow them to enter into this realm, how they choose, because really that's like, are that's you know one of the places that it would start and you know like i said earlier it's like it's full cycle there's so we're we're trying to access this at where we can and so now we're you know we're working with you know kids in this particular age range with with the the aim the intention the hope that and the understanding that this is going to have implications going forwards and backwards in you know quote unquote time and also, you know, lineage and generational. So, no, I would say, like, just hearing you, you know, the way that you're describing the baby and the mother and the father, each in their sort of um, most divine power, it's almost like birth was designed perfectly. <laughs> <you know? laughs> But also, I, and Jessica, I would like to hear you comment on this because I feel like we've, in our differences in talking about sexism and patriarchy, um, you, um, I just want to say that the, the conversation, J.D. and Jay, that you've entered into has really been helpful for me. So I'll do my framing, and I really would like to hear you say, Jessica, because in a sense, in a world where I, where I believe sexism has existed and does exist, it has put the father as like this head, knowledgeable head and, and a decider in a sense in, in that sexist world. And then in response politically, when in, in thinking, no, I don't like that. I don't think that's the right thing. Uh, and I, I, I want to fight sexism. I want equality. Um, then I kind of led me to a world that sort of eliminated the male and, and sort of put, tried to cut the father out essentially as a part. And that's why I did say, yeah, I would have said mother child. That's, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And, and I would not have put a role for the father. They could, if, if the woman says yes, then yes. Um, but I really think the way you 
are talking about it, both you and JD and Jay, feels more um, human than the way I've conceived of it, either in terms of sexist way or the response to sexist way. Both of them cut some something out that I think is missing something about what's really going on. Um, and so I definitely appreciate the, the this part of the conversation. And Jessica, I'd like to hear if you what you think of that too, because I feel like we've we touched on these areas of like, Hannah, does a does a does a father or a male have a say at this point, or should they kind of things? Have, we've touched on that at times in our conversations. I think I understand what you're asking. Um, I don't think. I don't think the father has a say. Like, if a woman want, like, I think the woman should be able to decide how she wants to birth. You know, and this this is a this is an argument that comes up in, in a lot of couples. Is like, you know, I want a free birth, and the partner may not be okay with that decision. Like, and and it's yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with women, and it's it's a conversation in my own relationship. I won't go too much into that about sort of not being fully aligned. You know, and it's. Yeah, it's interesting to hear um, Jay and JD talk about your, you know, like the many conversations that you kind of had around your your partnership, um, you know, in terms of specifically birth and how it, you know, how it's going to work. And that's that seems healthy. I think we need more of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think a lot of the questions around sort of sexism and um, there's like a flattening that occurs that like somehow the goal becomes the like we have to have the same roles right and like what you're describing right it's like no baby mother and father like each has a very 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 distinct role to play in this beautiful magical unfolding um and it, I don't know. Yeah, I just I do think that sometimes these conversations and and then I mean with the whole transhumanist thing I think different different episode maybe we'll do it at a future time but we're also having these strange confusing narratives kind of fed to us about now suddenly like men can give birth and you've got surrogacy and you've got um just all of this really twisted like transhumanist and and misogynistic as well um kind of uh yeah just narratives coming down the pipe which yeah, I think it's all it's all kind of tied into this larger transhumanist vision of um, you know, maybe we'll just have artificial wombs and um we won't we won't have to um like carry this burden, you know, and that and that is I mean I think even sort of second wave feminism, which I champion a lot on this show from, you know, various angles, I, I do think they kind of had a part in in that framing of like birth being this horrible burden that women you know have to carry and wouldn't it be great if we could just alleviate you know we'll, we'll just give them the pill for all these years so then they can enter the workforce and they won't even have to be connected to this you know fertility cycle which is such a such a burden and then childbirth right like how horrible and painful and and dangerous right and and that's a really twisted uh, story that I think has been quite successfully sold over the course of the past generation or two. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of went off. I don't know if that answers your question, <laughs> but that's that's what I got for now. No, I mean the flattening thing. I totally relate to that. That that's probably the best way of describing it. 
but I really was curious what you made of what they were saying because it, it's an unexpected, another unexpected journey you took in this conversation, Jay and JD, and I, I, I'm really glad you did. I do know some women who don't like don't want their their partner like in the room. Like they just want they just want to go like have their baby alone. You know, it doesn't mean that they don't want the father to be like a part of the larger part of the door, door. you know, <laughs> like that's where he's guarding the door. Leave her alone. That's what she said. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A lot of different, different desires and possibilities. I was just thinking about in Oaxaca, there is, I'm from Mexico and in Oaxaca, if the, there's an ethno botanical garden and there's a center where they talk about herbs and, Midwifery can't. They have to play a crucial part. Like they can't just stand there and do nothing and just watch. They they have to help with these women if they so request it. And they do these positions with them, where like sometimes uh, to alleviate uh, the pain or or um, or to help in in the birthing. If it's in the different positions, they have to support. And be there like they'll have sit. The woman has changed her position. I'll I'll post pictures up on this. I, I remember seeing this and for our viewers and listeners. And uh and I thought I never I never thought because of you know, these are rural areas of Mexico and I'm not from these areas, but I'm more of a city person. But I, I've always thought of this. As strange because in the hospital you never see a man participating that in close contact that way, other than just watching as a spectator and you know just, <laughs> just filming it. I suppose that's the mother modern thing to do, right? Uh, and uh, so I'm I I see a difference in the way that maybe indige- indigenous cultures might do this differently because we're all from all continents to have different indigenous uh, pra- uh, traditions that we probably have lost our way. And so I think that that's just the effect of like modern science and technology as well as uh, sexism, our industry with like, or the, the authority be given to doctors more than anything. Yeah. I don't know if anything, there is anything to touch on this subject. I think this would be, might be a good place to stop unless maybe Jay and JD, if there's anything you want to add, because I think we're, we'll be coming back to this. Um, but I think this is a good, good start. Yeah, I think it's great. Good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this, and I, thank you for sharing this stuff. Um, again, it's it's more stuff that there are certain episodes we've had that twist my mind more and put me in an altered place. This is another one of those episodes. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah, that's where you find your answers. You know, that's what we're. Yeah. We need to flex that muscle more. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. All right. Well, let's conclude then. I'll just do the outro and then we'll say our goodbyes. Oh, <laughs> I will tell people uh, that for the next few weeks, I'm going to be out. So it's going to be the Eduardo Jessica show. Oh, yeah, right. I'm going to Iceland. For two so weeks. I'll let people know. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. You know, <laughs> the, 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 the next few weeks will be gone. Maybe I'll send some pictures to Jessica and Eduardo and we'll, maybe Brian and Brandy will get some video that you can post give updates on Iceland trip. It's it's part of our honeymoon. We we weren't able to go before because Iceland was going to non-vax people had to basically 
quarantine in two weeks in Iceland. So we would have gone to Iceland. We were supposed to go to Iceland for our honeymoon. But we weren't going to go there and quarantine and then come home, you know. Oh, so. I'm quarantined. Right. <laughs> so this is our honeymoon final. All right. Great. All right, Eduardo. Right. Peace out. Here we go. <clears throat> well, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, What's Left is a weekly political podcast slash channel. Challenging the mainstream left, we post information about our topics and our guests in the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at whatsthepodcast.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast last channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you've heard here, please subscribe, <clears throat> rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram, and you can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. Uh, if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Larca, with co-hosts Jessica and Andy Lipson. Thank you both very much, uh, Jay and JD, and uh, for your insight, your spirit, for everything that you're doing out in the world. And we hope to have you back sometime again, even to discuss any of these topics in full depth. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll we'll link this school in the description, so if people want to check out um, as you guys are headed into year three soon, <laughs> if you want to check out that, it'll be linked. Great. All right. Thanks. Ciao. <laughs>